A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, Extremes Month continues, and this week we're going extremely deep. It's seriously fast already, though. My ears are beginning to go. Yeah, it's because of the you're dropping from sea level to below sea level at a high speed. People pay a lot of money for a ride on a fairground boat. Yes. We go on a merry-go-round every day. I take a trip to one of the world's deepest mines in search of gold. Plus, in the news, the GM mosquito that wipes out its own population. And would you return a lost wallet if you found one? We hear which is the most honest country in the world and who's the least honest. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first up this week, you will have heard lots of stories about these things in the news. The Zika virus and its potentially devastating consequences continues to spread. And based on the number of humans that get killed every year, mosquitoes are the world's most dangerous creatures, chiefly because they're the vectors for a whole raft of viral and parasitic infections that they spread when they bite us. Indeed, some people even dub them flying hypodermics. Now, a US company called Intrexon have announced that they've come up with a possible solution, a genetically modified mosquito in which only the males survive. Pretty quickly, the targeted mosquito population and its ability to spread deadly diseases crashes. Tom Reed is the chief scientific officer. We have engineered mosquitoes that will pass a gene that will kill all female progeny. So what we've done is we've engineered male mosquitoes that when they mate, they pass the gene to all of the male larvae and to all of the female larvae, and only the female larvae die. And how are you making that sex distinction? There are certain regulatory elements that differentiate between male and female expressed genes, and so we can control the expression so that it will only lead to the expression of the lethality product in the females and not in the males. Essentially a genetic switch, then, that turns on in the females but not in the males. That is correct. Why does it wipe them out? There are certain biological functions that require a use of energy. And so what we've done is we've overexpressed a protein that leads to a great deal of energy use, and you burn out the cell's ability to keep up it's a bit like leaving the lights on for too long. <laughs> you, kind of, you, you waste loads of energy and they haven't got energy to put into useful things like growing and mating, I suppose. It's actually the larvae that cannot go to the next level of development because you burn them out before they even go through development. Presumably, though, you do need a founding population of males to get this process started in the first place. Very good question. So our first generation mosquito 
was not male selective. You would have to manufacture both males and females and then use size selection to sort the males away from the females. So our second generation product is one that we are able to actually select only for the survival of the male mosquitoes. And then when we release the male mosquitoes in the population, every male child that's born will then breed and pass that gene until the population collapse occurs. Because it's only going in one direction, I suppose, because any female that breeds with one of your genetically altered males all of the male progeny will survive and will inherit it, and then they'll go and mate with more females. So it should grow in exponentially to start with until you saturate, and then the population is just going to be wiped out. That is correct. Do you know if this is going to work in the wild? We recently gave a press release that indicated the successful use of this in Brazil, showing that our mosquitoes suppress mosquito populations in the field at 96% the population falls by 96%. That is correct. Is this safe in the environment, though? Could that not have environmental consequences? This is an invasive species. Aedes aegypti is from Egypt, and these day-biting mosquitoes came via shipping to Brazil, and there were no natural enemies for these mosquitoes. So we're not having any negative impact on the wild-type environment we're actually removing a detrimental organism from that environment. And there's no danger the gene could jump ship and end up in a native species, mosquito or otherwise? No. Aedes aegypti will mate with Aedes aegypti. And actually, for other mosquitoes that carry different diseases, we have to create a version of that unique species in order for it to go after other diseases like malaria. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to ask you about next, which is, okay, you've proved the point with Aedes aegypti, which spreads diseases like Zika, but they're not the most nasty, dangerous animals in the room because the Anopheles mosquitoes that spread malaria probably are. There are hundreds of millions of cases of that around the world every year, aren't there? So can this technology be used in them? Absolutely, and I'm pleased to say that the Gates Foundation is working with us to develop this technology within the Anopheles species so that we can combat malaria. Now, the difference there is, though, that the Anopheles mosquitoes, they are native to the geography in which they spread malaria. So rather than them being an invasive species and you being able to say, well, what we're doing is removing an invasive from the environment, you're actually going after something that should be there. So this is a slightly different situation. Indeed it is, but there is a possibility on how you control the releasing and where the releasing occurs that you can start to collapse the population within a defined area. Well, let's hope so. In Trexon's Tom Reid, he was speaking to me at BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organisation meeting in Philadelphia earlier this month. If you found a lost wallet or purse... Would you give it back? To find out how honest people are around the world, Swiss and American researchers intentionally lost wallets in many countries to see what would happen to them. They've just published the results in the journal Science and Phil Sansom spoke to one of the authors, Alan Cohen, to get the honest truth. Money. Supposedly the root of all evil. But can it ever bring out the best in people? Here's a question. If you lost your wallet, would having money inside it make it more likely to get back to you or less likely? I've no idea. 
Probably less. I think it would be more tempting for people to want to keep it. Less, because there's more money in there and people are not honest enough as they used to be. People generally are um, good-hearted and would want to return it. Hope so. (laughs) Some people think more likely, some people think less likely. Well, according to a new study, the answer is actually more likely to get back to you. Surprised? Well, here's one of the authors of the study, Alan Cohen, to explain why. In 2013, we had a bachelor student, and he was spending an exchange semester in Finland. We seized this opportunity and asked him to turn in lost wallets at the counter of various public and private institutions. And specifically, we hypothesized that higher incentive to steal would reduce the level of honesty. That didn't happen, did it? No. Much to our surprise, we observed the opposite effect. Across the board, people were more likely to return a wallet when it contained a higher amount of money. At first, we we almost couldn't believe it and told him to triple the amount of money in the wallet. Yet, we again found the, the same puzzling finding. And so this was the beginning of a long journey as we wanted to better understand this result. Overall, we had 40 countries and 355 cities. We turned in more than 17,000 wallets. We varied the amount of money in the wallets, and the wallets were transparent, so people exactly knew what's inside. Where did you turn them in? Banks, cultural institutions like museums and theaters, post offices, public institutions like, for example, the police station. We hand them over directly to a person working at that particular institution. How would they know where to return the wallet? So the wallet contained three identical business cards that would signal who the owner is. We created unique email addresses for each wallet. Basically, every time we received an email, we knew exactly which wallet we were talking about. Wow, you're really covering all your bases there. We tried. I mean, it was an expensive experiment, so we tried to, to, <laughs> to, to maximize the outcome. Like how expensive? About $600,000. The money in the wallets cost us about 135000 It sounds like a lot, but there are other fields where researchers have to purchase uh, equipment and materials, like, for example, an fMRI scanner, and that can be much, much more expensive. And this is one of the first studies who measures honest behavior in an everyday life situation where people don't know that they're being observed. So you did this upwards of 17,000 times. What did you find? About 40% of the wallets were returned. Adding a small amount of money, that rate increased to 51%. If we included almost $100 in the wallet, that number increased further to 72%. Were you shocked? We were surprised to replicate the effect across almost 40 countries. So what does it mean? Why aren't people just seeing the money and being like, no one's going to know, I'll take that? There are two key factors to play a role here. The first one is altruism. You don't want to hurt someone else, so that could motivate you to return a wallet, especially when there is no money inside. But adding money completely changes the psychology because now there is a second component. People don't want to see themselves as dishonest people. This psychological cost increase with the amount of money in the wallet. So this force becomes stronger the more money there is in the wallet, and this gives this unexpected finding. So not only do you not want to be a thief, you don't want to look like a thief. How do you know you weren't just measuring what people behind the counters of these buildings would do, rather than just like everyone? 
the evidence speaks a little bit against that. So we took alternative proxies of dishonest behaviors, such as, for example, tax evasion or corruption of public officials. And so what we find is a strong correlation between our measure of dishonest behavior and these other proxies. And so this gives us confidence that we capture a more general behavior. While we cannot really say whether we measure people's behavior in their private role or in their professional role, I think both is interesting. They care about being seen as an honest person. And the most honest country? Well, it's Switzerland, coincidentally, where the study author Alan Cohen and his colleagues are based. Australia, you do quite well with people handing in the wallet half of the time. The UK, though, is not so good. Only a third of the time did the wallet come back and only up to half of the time when it has some money in it. And probably the one you're all dying to know, the most light-fingered nation on earth? Well, suffice to say, don't lose your wallet in China. You're only going to get that back about 10% of the time. Oh dear. Well, meanwhile, thanks very much to Phil Sansom for that report. Hi Katie, how are you? I'm pretty snug, to be honest. <laughs> it's quite cosy in here. The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. It does not mean that you need to be sophisticated on an instrument. You can just hack on a piano so I can legitimately tell my friends to shut up because I've just passed my driving test. You have my blessing, yeah. Do you want to know who you are? Can we actually understand how we think? From lifting the lid on consciousness to remembering how to forget, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. to come new insights into what causes asthma and how to treat it and we venture deep underground but before we go down deep how about heading for the heavens because for the past few weeks we've been asking you to send in your screams why is that because we're sending a balloon up to the edge of space it's carrying a loudspeaker and a microphone that are mechanically isolated from each other so the only way that sounds can travel between the two is through any air that's present so the aim is really to test the notion that in space no one can hear you scream now we've had some really terrific submissions for this so far so thank you very much to karen and the girls who are in class 6m at st hilda's in perth but the winner so far is this scream of the week from noir in south africa this is what she said Hi, Chris. I think that you should send a message from a mom <laughs> scolding her kids to clean their room up to space. So this is from Noir, and the message is, Children, come and clean your room! I just had to adjust my uh, headphones for that. Gosh, flashbacks into my childhood. But do you think you can beat that? The balloon with all of the recordings that will play your screams in near space goes up on the 29th of June. So record your yell and send it to Chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll give it a listen. Did you ever get shouted at like that? Did you have a messy bedroom? Yeah, I think I still have a messy bedroom, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, not not the tidiest of our roommates. So you're one of these people that when someone comes round, you quickly shove everything in the cupboard and it looks really tidy, but it's sort of nice from far, but far from nice. Yeah, there's like a mysterious cupboard where it's just like, <laughs> just don't open it. Like It's absolutely fine, but just don't open the cupboard. <laughs> but no, we're really looking forward to this experiment. And the other interesting announcement we've got for you this week is that uh, Rod Jones, who's Professor of Atmospheric 
Organic Chemistry at the University of Cambridge. He's agreed to come on board, not not in person. He's joining the project. And Rod has pioneered these wonderful miniature sensors. And he built them because obviously one of the things we know is that things like asthma attacks and other chest problems tend to occur on bad air days. But it was always very difficult to tether exactly what a person had encountered and in what sort of dosage of air pollution in terms of what triggered their asthma attack. So Rod built these really tiny sensors that can be mobile and they can measure all kinds of atmospheric gases. So he's agreed to lend us one. He's built us a matchbox-sized sensor which we're going to put into the box on the balloon and we're going to be able to measure carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, oxides of nitrogen, but also ozone. So as we go up, we will pass through the ozone layer. So we should see the ozone concentration peak and people will be screaming, not just in the edge of space, but also in the ozone layer as well. It's That's pretty cool. so exciting. I really can't wait for this experiment. It's going to be so good. So if you want to get your screams in, you've got till the 29th of June, which is when the balloon's going to go up. As Izzy says, email me a recording of your scream or whatever else you'd like to shout into space. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Very quickly, email here from Tree, or Try, I'm not sure which of the two, who says... I live in Iran, and in about a fortnight, I've got to take an exam called a conquer. It's four hours and ten minutes long. It includes Farsi, English, Arabic, religious studies, maths, physics, and chemistry. I took lots of mocks in the last three years, and in almost all of them, I felt sluggish and knocked out in the last two hours. I'm not really surprised. I tried fasting, eating a lot, caffeine, mid-exam bananas. I eventually just don't know what the best decision is to make. And maybe I thought sugar cubes, because they're quick and easy to eat, got lots of glucose in them at about the right concentration for what you might want in your bloodstream. I'd really appreciate the Naked Scientist guidance. So... Any thoughts? Mm, no expert on this one, but I think dates are a good source. They give you a really quick release of just the sugar hit that you need if you feel like you're dipping low. So there you go. Try some dates and then write back and tell us how you get on tree. Back to the news. And Old MacDonald had a farm. And more recently on his farm, he's been shocked to see the declining living conditions of common livestock. Most often than not, humans are omnivores, which means meat is a staple in our diet. But as the number of humans on Earth grows, so do the demands for food and particularly animal products. Some estimates suggest that the average meat eater consumes their own body weight in meat every year. And as the demands increase, we need to ask where is the line drawn between human nutrition and animal well-being. At Queen Mary University of London, they think they've come up with a sound way to solve the problem. Matthew Hall heard how from Michael McLaughlin. Suboptimal animal welfare is a widespread issue plaguing farms. While there are some that have taken initiative and provided more open space for the animals, more often than not, they are being raised in industrial facilities, also known as factory farms. These farms create a breeding ground for bacteria, which leads to abuse of antibiotics and an unhealthy battle to keep the animals from getting sick. It's enough to make Old McDonald turn in his grave, and despite public knowledge, little has been done to optimize the living conditions of our furry and feathery friends. Fortunately, a team based out of Queen Mary University of London decided to take action in a study published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface, where they are discussing the different confinements seen in farms. Yeah, you do have different levels of farming. You would have more intensive kind of farms, but you also do have some farms out there where they have higher levels of welfare for the animals. That is lead author Dr. Michael McLaughlin, who is a bioacoustician or someone who studies animal noises. So, for example, there would be a difference where you could have two types of indoor farming for chickens, for example. The chickens are kept in a large shed, but they're still able to roam around inside the shed. And then you would also have the more infamous ones, which would be the battery cage farms, 
which they're stacked up on top of one another. Those are two examples of different indoor farms, and there's a world of difference between them. The ultimate goal of the researchers is to improve the overall living conditions for the varying types of farm animals without using invasive methods. To do this, the team has devoted the last two years to developing a deep learning AI that is able to analyze the vocalizations, or bioacoustics, of pigs, chickens, and cattle. But the question is, why these animals specifically? If you ever go to a poultry farm, the sound of everything happening is just tremendous. Chickens are always making different types of sounds, and there's a lot of information carried in these things. And pigs as well, they are quite vocally active as well. They have different types of communications depending on the situations they are in. This is kind of stuff that has been established through behavioral research already and biology research. These animals, there's loads of information we could be gathering from them. To better understand the secrets within animal vocalizations, it is crucial that the team improves upon the technology. Fortunately for the team, the beginning of the solution was being developed by the popularity of automated analysis and voice recognition software. When you think of something like Alexa or OK Google, you speak into your phone and it immediately understands what you're saying. These same types of techniques can be used in machine learning, but they require having a lot of information about the actual behavior of the animals and what different calls can relate to. If you were to take an approach of machine listening, the first step is called feature extraction. If you take a raw audio recording and you were to just start throwing it into a machine learning algorithm, there's so many variables and the information is so complicated that you're probably not going to get the best results. So you want to kind of do is extract the most important information and features in these recordings. In order to do that, the first thing you usually do is something called a Fourier transform. A Fourier transform is a method used to take complex signals and break them down into a number of much easier to read waves that have their own frequency, phase, and amplitude values. These acoustic values are required to interpret our varying pitches and frequencies when we talk, making them the key in human speech recognition algorithms, in a similar fashion to how Alexa understands your varying pitches and sounds. Alexa, play the naked scientists. Animals have been found to have similar changes in pitch and frequency based on their current conditions. As an example, baby chicks are able to make pleasure chirps, which are short, ascending vocalizations, but also distress chirps, which are short, descending vocalizations. These differences are known due to the past experiments that have recorded animals in varying environments of arousal, in turn allowing the team to optimize their software to listen for chirps or squeals or moos that relate to the overall well-being of the animal. There is still one remaining issue, though. What classifies good animal well-being? Animal well-being is a very broad term, you know, and what one person regards as being good animal well-being, another person may very well be like, no, it's not good enough, you know. I think it's really important to look past just that. So I think one of the things our paper does well is we don't just talk about things like disease in animals. We also talk about their emotions. One of the things I would really like people to take away is talking about this kind of thing about animal emotions as well as are they dry, are they happy. We want to kind of raise awareness that's more than just making sure they're looked after, you know, Uh, in terms of their physical needs. You want to actually have them living enriched lives. An animal that is living its best life is not only good for the animal's health, 
but in the long run for the consumers as well. Healthier animals mean significantly less hazards after consumption, but even simpler than that, it means Old MacDonald can finally rest easy. Sounds good to me. Michael McLaughlin speaking with Matthew Hall, and that study was published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. Now, asthma is becoming more common. This chest disease can lead to life-threatening breathing difficulties when the airways constrict and when the lung tissue overproduces mucus. It's often caused by an allergic reaction that can be worsened by air pollution. But our understanding of what's actually going on in an asthmatic lung to cause the condition is still quite limited. But now, for the first time, scientists at the Sanger Institute near Cambridge have used a new technique to document and examine every cell in a lung sample from both healthy and also from asthmatic patients to discover what is changing when a person develops asthma. Charlotte Summers is an intensive care medicine doctor and a lung specialist at the University of Cambridge, and she's been taking a look at the study for us. What did they do, Charlotte? For the first time, these researchers took tissue from the nose, from the airway walls and from out in the kind of peripheries of the lung and looked at every single cell type that they could find at those particular sites and tried to find out how many types of cells and what kind of cells were they at those sites. And they did this in people who were healthy and people who'd had asthma since they were a child. And what did that reveal? So it revealed that there was more than 20 different types of cells in the healthy lung and that depending on the site that you sampled, the types of cells that you found were very different. But in people who have asthma, they found some pathological cells, so some cells that were contributing to the disease that they didn't find in the healthy people. And are there any clues as to where they came from? Are they cells that were born in the lung and they're there normally at such low level we can't see them or did they come in from outside? A bit of both, actually. They found what are probably some cells that came originally from the blood that they found. So one of the immune cells that are resident in the lungs with people who have asthma, but that those cells also cause changes in cells that were resident, such as some of the epithelial cells that are in the lung. So why did those blood cells come in in the first place? Well, that's a question that we may not necessarily have really strong answers to, but I think it's to do with the changes in the inflammatory mediators that were present in the lung. Would you suggest then that something winds up the lung tissue? I mentioned at the beginning, often we regard asthma as an allergic reaction. So could it be that 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 inflammation recruits these cells in and, and they then start to distort what should be going on. Yes. So I think particularly in these patients, they were people who had childhood asthma, which you know is much more likely to be of an allergic problem and the inflammation they found would be supportive of that, that actually that's exactly what was happening. And so those cells, these abnormal immune cells come in, how do they in turn then change what the lung is doing? How do they change the behaviour of the lung and make the mucus different? The immune cells that come into the lung secrete inflammatory mediators, which they think from this study induced a change in one of the epithelial cells from being what's called ciliated to being a type of cell that produced mucus too, as well as causing what we knew already to have more mucus producing cells in the lungs of asthmatic. That's quite interesting then, isn't it? Because you, you basically can persuade a cell to almost have a facelift, stop being a cell that would clean the lung and become one that makes gooey mucus. Exactly, and gooey mucus is a problem in people who've got asthma. Now, given that we, we have this insight and that they've got this baseline because they looked at lots of healthy people, they also looked at lots of people with asthma, but given that we've now got this baseline of what normal should be, 
I presume that's going to be really useful because we now understand what we should be like and we can then begin to compare that to all kinds of different lung conditions using the same sort of technique. Absolutely. So I think one of the most exciting things about this paper is for the first time we have a proper map of what normal should look like for all the different cell types in the airway, everything from the nose right the way down to the alveolus of the lung. And from there you can say, well, how has it changed in a whole host of diseases, in fibrosis, in asthma, in cancer, a whole host of respiratory diseases, a lot of which don't have any active therapies or things that work. And talking of therapies, will this inform how we make drugs? I think it probably will. I think part of the reason the researchers did this work as part of a collaboration called Open Targets is to try and look at what's actually going wrong in respiratory disease so that we can have better, more efficacious therapies that actually target the mechanisms. So understanding what causes disease in the first place, you can then work out better ways to treat it. Exactly. And then you can work out if your drug actually works because you know where you're trying to get to. Yeah, you've got to have a target to aim your therapy at. If you don't understand what's going wrong, you don't have a target. Charlotte, thanks very much for for making it simple for us. That's Charlotte Summers from the University of Cambridge and she was commenting on the paper that's just been published in the journal Nature Medicine by Philippe Vieira Breger and his colleagues. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Izzy Clark. Music in the programme this week is supported by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Throughout June, The Naked Scientist have been bringing you science at the extremes. And this week, Chris is going extremely deep. It's seriously fast already, though. My ears are beginning to go. Yeah, it's because of the, you're dropping from sea level to below sea level at a high speed. People pay a lot of money for a ride on a fairground boat. We go on a merry-go-round every day. Today I've been lucky enough to descend into one of the deepest working mines in the world. It's operated by the company Sibanya Stillwater in the Witwatersrand Gold Basin near Johannesburg in South Africa, one of the world's richest sources of gold. In fact, about a third of the world's entire gold reserve is thought to reside in South Africa, sitting beneath the surface. But why is that? Well, it's because about three billion years ago, this area in what's now the northeast of South Africa was an inland ocean. And surrounding it were mountains built from gold-rich magma brought to the Earth's surface by volcanoes and then eroded and washed into the sea by rivers where they formed a gold reef. As Sibania Stillwater's James Wellstead explains. The Witwatersrand Gold Basin was essentially an inland water body or lake or sea that had a number of rivers flowing into it. It was in quite a volcanically active period where you had a lot of old granites that had been produced from volcanic activity. The rivers were eroding those granites with the gold that was contained in those granites. And then as these rivers ran into the ocean, you got these big alluvial fans forming. And obviously uh, you've got a river rushing into a still body of water the water starts to slow down and what happens is that the heavier and bigger particles drop out first. So in the early part of the fan you get a lot more gold concentrated and it's associated with conglomerates which are the bigger uh, rock particles or rock pebbles and then in the distal parts obviously you get the finer gold which is probably at a lower grade and that's what we're finding over time is that the grade is getting less as we get deeper and deeper. 
Are those uh, sort of fans at multiple depths? In other words, have there been a succession over millions of years of deposits and therefore you just dig through each of them to get to the gold in each case? Yeah, there would have been a number of periods of, uh, you know, drier and wetter periods over the thousands of years that it took to deposit these ore bodies. So what you would have had is the inland water body growing and shrinking. And as it did so, obviously, um, you got different phases of more active deposition and less active deposition. So you get stages where you've got the reefs, which are, tend to be conglomeratic and, and um, associated with high fluvial activity, and then the more still periods, which are drier, where you get more muds and things being deposited, which uh, don't have gold associated with them. And what form is the gold in in those deposits? Is it tiny particles? Are we talking nice big nuggets? What's it look like? It's not nuggets like we find in some of the typical deposits overseas. Because they've been in river streams, they eroded, and they're quite rounded particles. In some instances, you can't see them with the naked eye at all. In fact, most instances. So the typical grade of the ore bodies in South Africa is about 5 to 7 grams a tonne, which, uh, you know, that's 5 to 7 grams of gold per tonne of rock. So it's, it's, it's not as rich as some of the uh, big nuggety ore bodies that you find overseas, but certainly it's much more consistent and over a much bigger area. So if I give you my wedding ring for a second, should I yeah. get it off? Um, I'm not asking you to marry me or anything, yeah. but there you go, a wedding ring. How much do you reckon that weighs? Uh, that's an 18, then carat gold. You told me. <laughs> but that's a couple of ounces of gold, I guess. And ounces. how much rock would you need to well, move in is... your plant to, to make that? Yeah, you'd have to move a couple of tons of, of rock to get this. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. It's very uh, labour-intensive work, capital-intensive, dangerous work. So, yeah, I mean, the price of gold is that for a reason. It's worth its weight in gold, even. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and with that, I went to explore this incredible setup. There are literally hundreds of kilometres of tunnels below ground. And I met James's colleague, Lenzore, who accompanied me down. Now, this is a very dangerous industry, although thankfully very few accidents now happen because safety is taken incredibly seriously. A poignant reminder was someone training me to use a re-breathing apparatus that would hopefully keep me alive for a while if we got buried. Then, kitted out in our hard hats, boiler suits and boots, we stepped forward to await our ride, or, as it turned out, near freefall, down into the mine. We're now standing on the bank, we're waiting for the conveyance to arrive which is a vertical shaft that drops about one and a half kilometres, and you'll see the, the conveyance moves quite fast. It's not like a lift in a building. It's like 12 metres a second. These are just sort of open cages, aren't they, really? Yeah, there's, there's four compartments. You get your man winders, and you get your rock winders on the side. This we use for people and material. Other side is for rock. We were joining one of the mining chefs heading to work, and this was the first of a number of lifts that descend into the mine, which extends kilometres down into the ground. In fact, it's so deep, it's the third or fourth deepest mine in the world, that the men working in the farthest depths take more than an hour to reach their destination. And that's despite the dizzying speed of the descent. It's seriously fast already, though. My ears are beginning to go. Yeah, it's because of the, you're dropping from sea level to below sea level at a high speed. Make a few yawns so that your ears can pop open. People pay a lot of money for a ride on a fairground, yes, We go on a merry-go-round every day. Once our stomachs caught up with us, we emerged from the lift at one of the main underground stations where the rock walls were painted a very tasteful cream colour. Now, this area is big and it's got a train track running through it to bring piles of rock containing the gold from the faces where they're being drilled and blasted out so they can go back to the surface. 
Tunnels like this come off horizontally at different levels of the mine. They're called crosscuts, and they're intended to intersect the gold reef, as it's known, on what would have been the floor of that ancient ocean way back in time. <laughs> Pretty quickly, though, the tunnels narrowed down to just a couple of metres, and Len and I followed a team of miners out to where they were extracting ore from one part of the reef. We're standing here now at an 8-metre reef. On the other side, it's 12 metres high. And in this reef, you can see the various rocks that was transported with the sediment where you get your gold in. Oh, I see. So you can use the fact that in amongst this, it's almost like a cake with raisins in, isn't it? Those are the pebbles. That tells you this is a layer which must have been washed into this primitive basin by the rain. That's it. Correct. Correct. And the geologists know what sort of configurations go with where the gold is? Yes, yes, they do. Um, also, with, with past experience, as, as the mines have uh, started mining 50, 60 years ago, they, they intersected the topper bands of reef first, which is this one we're talking to now, uh, VCR. As you go lower down, you get your main reef, and you get a carbon leader. Carbon meaning it's, it's heavier, so it's much deeper, uh, which is much older reef. Well, if you talk about older, there's millions of years difference between the reefs. But the carbon leader is the one that's most richest. It's got the most gold in it, obviously, because gold is heavier than most substances. This VCR one has also got lots of reef in it, but uh, you have to mine much more of it to get the same amount of gold as you would mine uh, carbon leader. Now, this is, of course, a working mine. And before I can ask Len any more questions, a gentleman turned up with the most incredible drill, more than a metre long, and he began to make holes so he could plant charges to blast out more ore for processing. But how did the team know where the reef is and how to get to it? I walked a bit further along the tunnel with company vice president, Carl Delanger. Uh, look, we do a lot of drilling beforehand, so we anticipate we know already beforehand you know, how far we are from the reef and we will know exactly when we intersect the reef as well. The drilling goes ahead, so we will know within 150 metres exactly where the reef is, although we've already got the delineation of the reef body through surface boreholes that we've drilled previously. So the team know where the reef is, but because the deposit is sloping, they need to extract it in a series of manoeuvres that progressively remove more material each time and eventually open up a larger space, one of which we were standing in. In this instance, what we're looking at here, we're actually right on the level and we mine into the reef on the level itself. So the mining that we do here, we actually mine from uh, the crosscut. We mine into the uh, reef and we've got this wide excavations. So we'll take a top cut first, install our support in the hanging wall by means of long tendons, long anchors, and then we'll start to trench down. So we'll start to take it out. Eventually we'll have this wide open excavation of about 10 metres, which we are standing in. Between these opened-up paddocks, as they call them, the team initially leaves supporting pillars of rock to prevent collapse. But once the ore's been cleared from each paddock space, the open area can then be refilled with processed ore tailings, which are brought back from the surface and mixed with cement. And then the pillars, which still contain gold ore, are themselves removed. Now, we don't take out the large excavation either. We run about 10 metre wide paddocks. And uh, then we leave a pillar and we take out another paddock 10 metres further. And and so we carry on. Uh, Then we will fill these open excavations by means of uh, cemented tailings, And once these have settled and hardened, we'll come back and we'll take out the pillars in between these uh, uh, cemented backfold paddocks. Oh, I see. So you use the waste from the mining, cement it back together, shove it into the hole you've made, 
and then the bits you had to leave behind before, you then take those out. So you, you really do clear out the area and then fill it back in. Yeah, exactly, exactly like that. Yeah, we're trying to optimise the resource. But as a general rule of thumb, wherever you drill a hole, water from natural underground sources wants to flood in. And if you don't keep an eye on this, it could impact on the water source for those living in the area, either depleting it or contaminating drinking water with dangerous material or toxins from the mines. This is a situation that water consultant Johan Wagner works to avoid. Well, at this particular mine, we're putting into the environment an average of 70 megalitres. That's million litres per day. But we pump almost 100, 110 megalitres per day. Why the difference? The rest is being used in the plants. So we use our underground water also for processing, for mining, and for doing the gold as the main transporter. And the surplus water we keep clean, and that's suitable for disposal into the environment. It's no mean feat to pump that mass of water up to three kilometres to the surface. Well, that's actually a major part of our costing. So what we do is we have very big pump stations, uh, obviously at the lowest points. At certain places we do also do underground treatment. We put the water into settlers, separate out the sludge and the mud. The mud goes to the plant because there's also gold in there. And then the rest we pump out with these huge pumps uh, all the time. So it's a continuous process. So where does all this water come from? Well, the source of the water is mainly rainfall, recharge, but also leaks in the system. Uh, You know, for example, the local municipality has got a 60% water loss. So they're leaking pipes. It's actually also going down the mines. And then we have old sinkholes, where if there's a lot of rain, the stormwater runs directly into the mine workings that we've got to pump. So in the wet season, we actually pump a lot more water than in a dry season. So when you say leaking pipes, are we talking fresh water or are we talking wastewater, sewage? We, we're talking both. Um, the infrastructure is quite old of the municipalities and um, because of the soils uh, you know, are moving, there's dolomitic areas, uh, you know, and, and that causes breaks in the pipes and then uh, because of that it leaks. So you're pumping someone else's sewage out of your mine? We are, in fact, quite an amount. We estimated almost uh, 20 megalitres per day, 20 million litres per day at one mine, of municipal water and wastewater we're pumping, which is not our water. Is that not potentially a health risk for your miners? We have analysed this up to at this point, and so far we haven't detected anything. What we think is happening is... Because it goes through the wetted zone, the, the dolomitic areas act as a sand filtration system. So we pick up little bits of nitrates, you know, nutrients, but not really bacteria or anything. We do sample and monitor the situation, though. So what about when you don't want to work here anymore? Once this is worked out, you don't want to leave all these tunnels here and you can't presumably just let them flood because there would be consequences, wouldn't there? Have you got some kind of managed retreat strategy? Absolutely, because a lot of people think we will create another asset mine drainage disaster. We did extensive planning and modelling and testing, and we have a plan to close this mine in such a way that when it's done, 
uh, it will be almost as normal. In other words, the salt pollution will stop and it will return to the normal you know, clean water situation. So what is an, an acid mine tailings disaster that you mentioned? What is one of those? Well, what is happening on the, the centre of Johannesburg area is because of pyrites in, in the rocks to the left and water and air and bacteria causes acid forming. The geological structures in that area is very much different from here. We don't expect, if we close the mines properly, any of that to happen here. And so what is the strategy? How will you do it? At closure, we will basically install plugs in these shafts, in the lower-lying shaft areas, then carefully flood the mine in a controlled fashion with basically pressure relief valves because you don't want to create a pressure cooker by filling it up. Oh, is it because the rock is so hot here? If you just let the water go in then, and no, seal the shaft off, you're going to have a high pressure build up behind no, your plugs. Just simply, if you fill up a tank, you will have uh, air on the top. And the air pressure will build up as you fill it up. So you've got to relieve you know, the, the pressure. Because what we want to be doing is we don't want plug flow. We can fill up the mine, and there's no water running through the mine. We won't have any pollution. So the whole thing is we fill up the mine up to the hard rock lavas. We plug it with concrete in a controlled fashion. And then we let the, the normal recharge to restore the situation. And that's basically the plan. Johan Wagner. Some of the water in the mine has been trapped down there for millions of years, seeping through cracks in the rocks. And while the team continues to search for gold... Others are looking for something quite different. Special forms of life. Scientists have found life in some bizarre and extreme conditions in the past, like around deep sea vents. And in our continuing search for life on other planets, the extreme conditions inside our own planet may provide clues as to how life like this might survive. I met with Kay Kaloyo from the University of the Free State, who's looking for life deep underground. In 2010, there was a paper that was published about a worm that was found in fissure water in one of the mines. This is one of the biggest discoveries to date, because before that we've only found smaller life like bacteria, and then in this case it was a nematode, which is even a higher order microorganism. So that gave an indication that there could be different uh, levels of life in extreme environments. When we say extreme environments, where were these organisms found growing? This was in a 2.3-kilometre depth mine in fissure water of about 30 degrees. So when we talk about extreme environments, we're talking about in the deep mines where there's very little nutrients and the temperatures can go as high as 70 degrees Celsius. So to find complicated life growing at those extreme temperatures in very nutrient-poor environments says there's something pretty special about those sorts of organisms. Yes, it means that these organisms have genes that can help them make the kind of food they need. In the absence of sunlight and other sources, they can actually use the chemicals and the minerals in their elements to make their own food and survive these conditions. How did they get here? Well, the theory is that over millions of years ago, as the water gradually seeped down into the surface of the earth um, and when you had um, seismic activities and the water was going down, some of these microorganisms came down with the water and they became trapped here for so long. And over time, they have been able to adapt to the conditions here. How do you know that's how it happened and that, for instance, they didn't just arrive with the last rainstorm washed in from above? 
Okay, well, we do isotope analysis of the water as well, uh, carbon-14 dating, to determine the age of the water. That tells us that some of the water samples that we've taken here are millions of years ago, and sometimes even up to billions of years old. So if the water's that old, the organisms must have been in it for at least that long? Yes. So why are you down this mine today? We never pass a chance to take one or two samples, because you never know where you find how are you doing that? We have sterile falcon tubes with us that we always carry, and that's for grab samples. If we find a seepage in the rocks, we can take uh, some of the water samples, or if we find biofilm growing around the rocks, we take that and then we culture in the lab and see what's in there. Because there's some water dripping down over here. Is this of interest? We think it might be fish water. We need to ask the geologists to confirm that. But we see water coming out of the rock surface like this. It's probably um, old water that's um, seeping out. And then what you see on the surface of the rocks, like the brown color and the black color, we think that's microorganisms that are growing on the rock and also using the nutrients from the water to survive. So over time, they form a film on the rock of different colors, black or brown or white or pink, depending on the kind of nutrients that they're using. So for us, this is easy for us to collect and understand what the microbial diversity is. Do you have a lot of contamination from microorganisms brought here by us? Yes, because there's a lot of human activity, mining activity around here, and especially the places where there's been a lot of um, development, then most times we find uh, microorganisms that have come from uh, human activities, even sometimes common microorganisms like uh, E. coli. We find them in these water samples, so we have to be really careful um, what we say is originally from the mine and what's from the surface. Should we grab a sample? Yes. Even very little water samples can yield a lot of um, information about the microorganisms. So I'm just going to scrape some of the brown color. I don't know if you can smell a little bit of hydrogen sulfide. If you it does smell a bit sulfurous, yeah. I'm going to scrape some of the black color because we think that could be sulfate-reducing bacteria. And why do you think the sulphur is important? Because um, usually what you find in the gold mines is a lot of pyrates and, and sulphates as well. And, you know, that's also associated with the gold. So the bacteria are, are using the sulphates as, as a food source? Yes. Because they're obviously not able to rely on energy coming from the sun. They have no, to get their food chemically. From what's around them, yes. You find some of them use the sulphates, some use the iron as well, and some use perhaps the nitrates. What are the implications of this discovery? Well, um, because of the conditions that we're finding some of these microorganisms in, for instance, the ones we find in high sulfate areas in the gold mines, we are able to use some of these microorganisms for cleaning things up, like acid mine drainage and things like that. Also, we use them for green technologies, taking away more chemicals and using biological agents. As the vice president of the company has just pointed out, can you not discover a strain of organism that will eat gold and then poo it out in the right place to make their job a lot easier? Well, that's um, some of the research that we're doing where we have microorganisms that can bioaccumulate the gold and then we can extract the gold from the microorganism. As one of them pointed out, that in places where they cannot really reach or are too dangerous, is it possible for us to use microorganisms? That's the next level that we're looking at. Is we do have some bench-scale applications of this where we've seen it happen, not just gold but copper and some other minerals. So taking it to bigger levels and really showing that it can work is what we're looking at now. Can it be scaled industrially to match what these guys do with drills and diggers? Well, that's going to take a lot of time. You know, <laughs> Microorganisms work at their own pace. Over time, we can use it for small-scale applications, but right now, it cannot match what these guys are doing. But give us some time, and we might be able to apply to those processes. So watch this space, you could say. 
With the rocks collected and hoisted to the surface, it was time to go back up to ground level to see how the gold is processed, because, unfortunately, this isn't like you see it in the films. There are no shiny hunks of gold waiting to be pulled out of the walls of a tunnel. Instead, tiny particles of gold are locked up with the rocks alongside other useful materials, like uranium and copper, and there's also a huge amount of waste in there, things like pyrite or fool's gold. The first stage in getting the gold out is to break up or mill the material to liberate the gold particles, as Ricardo Barker-Cook explained to me. The gold is situated in your finer particles and you need to actually grind it to get to the actual gold. And how do you smash up the particles? Currently we've got uh, six mills. So basically what happens, your feed goes into your mill and it's uh, basically the steel balls that is crushing your material. Oh, so the steel balls bouncing around in a, inside the milling yeah, correct, machine. Yes. And as the slime goes between the balls, it gets You've crushed. You've got that interaction. That's correct, yeah. It's basically crushing, but just on a much smaller scale. And how much stuff is going through these mills every minute or two? Um, OK, we're pushing 400,000 tonnes a month. We're talking about doing about 550 tonnes per hour. It's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. <laughs> Next, the excess water is removed, leaving a pulp, and then stage three involves something I wasn't expecting. After thickening, we get to a section which we call the leaching section, and in the leaching section is where we add cyanide. Say that again, you use cyanide. Cyanide, sodium cyanide, which gets used for gold dissolution. The mill door is mixed with cyanide, and that pulls the gold out of the rock and into solution. And then you add carbon to soak it up. Carbon is a reagent which has got pores and that will absorb all the gold onto the carbon. The gold is not in its purest form yet because it still has all the other impurities which is within the the slurry. Then the, the carbon gets taken to the elution process where we expand the pores of the carbon and then we take the gold out back into the solution form. So having now separated the gold from the carbon, which is done using sodium hydroxide in a very high temperature, they use electricity to pull out the gold in a system called an electro-winning cell. And that solution gets circulated through to the final stage, which we call the smeltos stage, whereby it circulates through the electro-winning cell, and that's where we produce our final product. Still not in its purest form, and that gets dispatched to rent refinery three times a week. What they then send off by helicopter is about 88% purity and after the final clean-up in the refinery, you're left with about a 99% pure gold bar. The current process tries to minimise the waste that it produces. Indeed, once the gold has been extracted, the mine is back-filled with that waste. But it hasn't always been like that. Across South Africa, there are huge piles of waste material, known as tailings, which have built up since gold was first discovered in the country in the late 1800s. But techniques have improved a lot since those days, meaning that the clean-up process can now actually pay for itself. Grant Stewart heads up the gold retreatment facility that's handling the old mine waste from years gone by. One of the fundamental objectives of this programme is an environmental and socially responsible objective, and that's to take all the nasty tailings dams which exist over a 40-50 kilometre radius to a central deposition site, thereby taking away the dust pollution freeing available land for development and obviously there's a benefit from a gold and uranium and a a sulfuric acid perspective that would make it economically viable. 
There's around 795 million tons of material that we have available for immediate processing, and that would obviously be processed over a life of around 30 to 35 years. But that essentially contains about 150-odd million pounds of uranium and about, uh, I think it was about 7.1 million ounces of gold. So there's a substantial amount of economic benefit from being able to extract and process these tailings. So literally a case of turning trash into treasure. And with my day in the mines nearly over, it was time to catch up once again with James Wellstead. And we considered the scale of South Africa's contribution to the world's gold supply. I think I've heard numbers of around 40% of all the gold in circulation, of which most of it is still in circulation because gold doesn't tend to get used up in any processes. In terms of reserves, if you look at resources that still lie underground and that potentially could be unlocked through new technologies, uh, there's still probably as much as what we've mined in the past. So significant amounts, much more than I think any other country in the world. But it, the problem is its depth and the cost of extraction, which makes it difficult to. So that's why it's likely to possibly lie there for quite some time. So next time you go walking past a jeweller's, you can safely assume that over a third of the shiny stuff in the window probably came from here, near Johannesburg, but a very long way down. I'm not sure if this programme qualifies us for world's deepest radio programme or podcast, but it should certainly make us all think deeply about how we reach and how we use the world's resources. And as I drove back to Johannesburg, away from the deafening, drilling, mining and processing noises, I experienced something else golden. Silence. Gosh, I don't think I could have gone down into a gold mine. And whether or not we're the world's deepest show, we're going for the world's highest show next time because we'll be recording your screams from the edge of space. Thanks to the team at Sabanya Stillwater for granting us special access to your mine. If you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, do drop a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Naked Scientist and we'll be uploading photos of Chris down in the mine, so do be sure to check them out. Or you can get involved on the forum, that's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Izzy Clark and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.